Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. This week, Governor Inslee outlines his plans for the state. Let's boldly continue our fight against climate change and salmon extinction this session. But Republicans have their own agenda, and it includes, as always, tax cuts. Whether it's gas tax relief or sales or sales tax relief, something that affects all Washingtonians. Also, some in law enforcement want to interrogate children without the presence of a lawyer. We're throwing all these legal rights at them and we're giving them every reason in the world to not cooperate with the law. Plus, President Biden gets his own docudrama. There's no question this puts this White House in a really awkward position. Having now dueling special counsels with the current and former president at the center of them, just as we know these two could very well be running against each other in the next presidential race. And... What does the Pentagon know about UFOs? All of that coming up this hour, but first, with all the controversy on the national fronts, state politics is starting to get pretty interesting with the start of the legislative session, and every time the legislature convenes, the governor gives his State of the State address. Joining me now is Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris, who covered the State of the State address from Governor Inslee and the Republican response earlier this week. And I guess, uh, first off, what was the overarching message that the governor had well really i think the governor the theme anyway was you know to take bold and decisive action really to to go big this time around and in each of the areas that he sort of broadly covered housing and homelessness uh mental health care and more climate and environmental actions it was the whole thing was Let's go big with it. And housing and homelessness, particularly with the investments that he wants the state to make, was certainly one of the big ticket items. Yeah, he really started up right out of the gate with that. And he talked about it before the speech in a couple of public events. But this was the official call to lawmakers for them to pass legislation that would create a $4 billion bond measure beyond the state's debt limit. So it requires the legislature to send a referendum to the ballot for you to approve with your vote in order to extend the state's debt limit temporarily, albeit for this $4 billion bond. The idea is to pay for new housing that includes immediate and longer term affordability, and he wants to do it at a much larger scale. And if there was ever a time to go big, it's now. And I understand the frustration of those who wonder why this problem hasn't been solved yet. And I understand the allure of easy answers to homelessness. Now, part of the idea here is to build more houses here in Washington, because in the next 20 years, we're going to need something in the range of another million housing units just to be able to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to have a roof over their heads. But he also wants to include in this, of course, uh, more rapid supportive housing like we've seen with the counties buying old hotels and turning them into secure housing for homeless people with drug or mental health problems with services on site. Because we know that substance use treatment and mental health support can work when you combine it with secure, stable housing. So the state wants to expand the offerings of low-income housing and supportive housing. 
But the state simply doesn't have enough money to build these million units that we're talking about. This really needs some help from the private sector. Well, and that's part of the argument is that, number one, they want help from the private sector, these private builders and contractors to build these new homes. But many of them just can't or won't do it because they would be required to sell them at so-called affordable prices so they wouldn't make as much money. And in fact, uh, as this bill got uh, rolled out for the first time in a legislative committee hearing, one of the housing advocates said, you know, they won't do it. And some of these are going to need public subsidy. Now, Inslee also made the point that we're not talking about like a lot of the money spent on homelessness that the other side of the aisle will argue is we've thrown good money after bad and haven't really made a dent in the problem because we're talking about building housing units that will have and will still be there uh, when they are needed over the years. And again, that million uh, number, it's a rough number, but we're talking over the course of 20 years. So it's its obviously something that needs to happen, whether it's public or private and uh, more than likely a combination of the two, but the number is needed. That's going to be a big ticket for the state budget, which lawmakers have to agree on. Governor Inslee obviously unveiled his proposed budget back in December, and now the negotiations continue. What are other, some of the other big things that he wants the legislature legislature to spend money on in his sort of go big or go home approach? Well, a part of it is, of course, uh, more mental health care availability, more beds available. And keep in mind, this $4 billion bond measure, $900 million of it, nearly a quarter of it, would be earmarked toward building a new 350-bed forensic psychiatric hospital facility and apparently tearing down an old one on the Western State Hospital campus. But the governor also talked about, again, as he has before, the need for smaller community mental health clinics. He says he wants cities and counties to partner with them on that. So we're talking about a place with maybe a dozen or 16 beds or so You know, so it needs to be sort of, in the governor's mind, a combination of these things. But another thing the governor talked about on mental health that I wasn't aware of that I found rather interesting is that there's been a sharp rise in referrals from Washington courts for people to be treated and for competency care where they get just enough care to make sure if they're not competent to stand trial, that they can then do so. We should be prioritizing diversion and community-based treatment options rather than using the criminal justice system as an avenue to mental health care, particularly because competency services only treat people to get well enough to be prosecuted. So aside from mental health and housing, what else did the governor want? Well, of course, climate is a big thing for him, and he did a lot of talking about the bills that are now on the books uh, starting January 1st, the cap and invest program, which limits carbon emissions and opens up a market for trading carbon credits, as well as the uh, new clean fuel standard. But one of his big environmental themes this time around was the work that's needed to restore salmon habitat, because salmon is not only culturally critical here in Washington state, not just to the native uh, population, the indigenous population, but to the rest of us as well, and to, you know, to help the orcas to thrive and, and so on. But, you know, it's also a commercial industry. 
The salmon are a big part of the water-related economy. So one of the other things that he talked about, in addition to building more clean energy projects and making sure it's easier to permit these things like solar farms or definitely expanding the electrical grid, which we'll need to do as we move to clean energy, since much of it is going to be electricity-related. He also talked about a program to help landowners restore shoreline habitat in order to help salmon thrive. Let's boldly continue our fight against climate change and salmon extinction this session. So obviously a lot of proposals from the governor, whether it's on homelessness or the environment or housing or whatever it happens to be. How have Republicans responded? Well, I can tell you, Jeff, Republicans were highly critical of the governor in their response to this speech. A decade of the governor's speeches and continued reckless spending have not produced the results we all deserve. So that's Republican Representative Peter Abarno of Centralia, who was chosen this year to give the official Republican response to the state of the state address. And he says that Washington not only needs more investment into education at all levels, but he says we fall woefully short when it comes to affordable child care for working parents. Parents are foregoing educational and employment opportunities because childcare is just not accessible or affordable. Unfortunately, the governor and his party have neither provided meaningful economic relief nor created opportunities for families to succeed. And as a result, many families are stuck in what feels like a hopeless cycle of struggle. Of course, it's also a common theme among Republicans and has been for many years running now that they want to provide tax cuts. And Abarno on that day said that the legislature and the governor should be giving you the tools and opportunities for success. We could reduce the sales tax, which disproportionately hurts lower and fixed income Washingtonians. We could provide property tax relief and build more homes so that young families can own a piece of the American dream. We could expand the working families tax credit to get more money into the pockets of our neighbors to provide for greater economic security. We should invest in education, early learning, and child care opportunities for working families. So, Ryan, were there any other issues that the Republicans brought up in their response and in their plan for the legislative session? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because one of the pervasive ones, and it's it's a common among uh, both sides of the aisle when you're talking about the voters, and that's public safety. And Republicans, of course, uh, want more cops to be trained and put onto the street. Now, the governor, again, touted this idea of expanding the police training from the criminal justice training center that's here on this side of the state to other regional training centers to give more opportunities there. But, uh, you know, Abarno and the Republicans say we need a lot more cops on the street if we want to improve public safety. He also is hoping that the 2021 police reform laws, or at least some of them, will be reversed. And the big one there is, of course, the one where police are not allowed to pursue somebody only under limited circumstances. They can't chase after somebody unless, you know, they're a, a known violent criminal or uh, I believe uh, their crimes are sexually related there. Uh, and they want to see that reversed because what it's done, we've seen it, it's emboldened criminals who know that police can't chase them to simply run when the cops show up. And so uh, the Republicans definitely want that. And the other thing too, and you know, we've talked about it, especially uh, in Seattle with the King County Jail and how it has a, an often a revolving door with a repeat offenders who, you know, will go in, 
in. They're in for a couple of days. They let them out. And then a few days later, they're arrested again. The Republicans definitely want more accountability and for repeat criminals to be held behind bars. All right, Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris, thank you so much for the time and insight. Glad to do it, Jeff. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, should police be allowed to interrogate children without the presence of a lawyer? Believe it or not, some in the law enforcement community are arguing they should be allowed to do just that when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. This week marked the start of the legislative session down in Olympia. As has been so common over the years in this very blue state, Democrats expanded their majorities in both chambers following last fall's elections. But Republicans continue to push for their priorities. One of the most outspoken and conservative members of the GOP is Senator Phil Fortunato of Auburn. On Wednesday, he held a press conference in which he brought up multiple speakers to denounce many of the bills Democrats have recently passed. One of them was Bob Lurie, vice president of the King County Police Officers Guild. Now, much of the discussion was around a perceived hatred of police and laws restricting chases and other use of force. But he did say one thing that caught my ear. We're not allowed to ask a juvenile after they've been arrested. Uh, We can't talk to them. We have to call their attorney instead. The attorney, of course, is going to say don't talk to the police. I followed up by emailing the event's moderator. Jeff Polgula's second question is directed at Bob Lurie. So, Bob, get ready to answer. Um, Are you seriously suggesting that minors who have been arrested should not have the right to legal representation when being questioned by police? The police right now can't even question a juvenile. So a juvenile right now could literally, and we had this happen in one of our, in the jurisdiction that I work in, it was a thrill kill. He shot a guy in the back of the head just to see what it would feel like. If you pick that kid up now, you can't talk to him. You have to call the attorney and then the attorney is going to invoke his rights for the juvenile. And instead of trying to figure out why he did this, how he did it, and to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again, uh, that's not what's happening. If, if we're in this to rehabilitate kids, we're throwing all these legal rights at them and we're giving them every reason in the world to not cooperate with the law. We are de facto in society creating a lot of these problems through through legislation like this. It's absolutely uh, uh, outrageous to me and to our major crimes investigators, of which I used to be one, to be able to to, to, to have a, a kid uh, in custody and you can't talk to him. Miranda came out. Miranda is applicable to juveniles. It's up to the juvenile to assess whether or not he wants to talk to us. Many times when people commit horrendous crimes, it's unconscionable even within their own souls. When you get people who have done bad things, they often want to confess to get it off their chest and we have shut that door to be clear Laurie, the vice president of the king county police officers guild is saying that police should be allowed to interrogate children without the presence of a lawyer he takes issue with a recently enacted law that requires officers to not only give miranda warnings to minors who are being arrested but also get them an attorney before they begin questioning for a response i spoke with defense attorney david treeweiler so what's your reaction to that well, uh, where to begin, uh, really? Um, you know, in my over 30 years of uh, practice uh, of criminal defense, um, I've seen over and over again, police don't like 
constitutional rights. Uh, and they always bring up some horrendous crime and then claim uh, the constitutional rights uh, interfere with uh, solving uh, these crimes. But the purpose of constitutional rights are, are to protect us from an overbearing government. And uh, nobody needs that more than juveniles whose brains uh, have been shown over and over by scientific studies to be very immature. Uh, they don't understand their constitutional rights. And police are allowed uh, to use incredibly uh, coercive pressures to get them to say things. The police are allowed to lie to them. The police are allowed to uh, make false implications to them about what will happen to them if they don't cooperate with the police. So nobody needs a lawyer more than a juvenile to protect their constitutional rights. What constitutional rights are you specifically citing here? Uh, the Sixth Amendment right uh, to effective assistance of counsel, uh, which the United States uh, Supreme Court said uh, in 1967 uh, that juveniles have. They have the right to counsel. Uh, and that right to counsel has subsequently um, uh, included the Miranda rights that uh, police are so disdainful of uh, because police don't like people to understand their rights. I, I think so, an issue here, what, what um, Robert Lurie and the King County Police Officers Guild are arguing is this requirement that the state legislature enacted last year that before you even question them, you have to offer them an attorney. Well, that's true now. Right now, they have to be given the Miranda rights, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, tells them they have the right to an attorney before being questioned by police. And in fact, they have, uh, in recognition of how juveniles do not really understand their constitutional rights, uh, the King County Sheriff's Department has instituted a simplified version of Miranda uh, for juveniles so that they can better understand it. So that even the King County Sheriff's Department wants juveniles to understand their constitutional rights before they waive them. And so it's just that simple. They already have this right. I guess he's complaining about juveniles having constitutional rights is really what he's complaining about. Again, that's defense attorney David Treeweiler responding to a push from Bob Lurie, VP of the King County Police Officers Guild, to allow police to interrogate minors without the presence of a lawyer. Now, we have to take a quick break, but coming up next, Probapalooza. Republicans plan to investigate everything from Hunter Biden's laptop to Anthony Fauci when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. This past week, the chairman of the new Republican-led House Oversight Committee issued a flurry of letters as part of the panel's first formal steps toward a long-promised investigation targeting President Biden, his son Hunter, and social media companies they allege sought to suppress negative stories about the president's son they claim could have affected the 2020 presidential election. In addition to this, it looks like Republicans are keeping their promise to, quote, investigate the investigators. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., and there's a lot going on here, and Republicans seem to be sort of responding in kind to that January 6th committee. Well, look, if you like the four Republican-led Benghazi hearings when Hillary Clinton was supposedly asleep at the wheel when this happened, although it happened in the middle of the afternoon Washington time, and she sat for eight hours and was investigated, and after two years and millions of dollars spent, discovered that she had done nothing wrong, Get ready for Probapalooza, because that is what the Republicans are promising for the next two years. Uh, As you mentioned, investigating everything from the withdrawal from Afghanistan to Hunter Biden's laptop 
to now, the most recent revelations that there were classified documents found in an office that Joe Biden used as a private citizen after he left as vice president. So there are indeed some real substantive things to investigate. Oddly enough, that same House Republican Oversight Committee plans no investigations into former President Trump refusing subpoenas for classified documents that he says he knowingly took and he has the right to, that he owns them, uh, and that in some cases he declassified them with his mind. Joe Biden is not making any of those claims. The current president says he didn't even know they were there, not sure how he got there. He's fully cooperating and that they turned them over as soon as they found them. How much of this committee and its leadership and membership is part of the deal that Kevin McCarthy had to make with the sort of Tea Party wing, the Freedom Caucus uh, of the Republican Party in order to get the gavel? I'm not sure he had to really go out of his way. I mean, Kevin McCarthy promised the same things when he was running for office. I mean, this is what many of the Republicans ran on, uh, that they were going to have all these investigations and oversight into President Biden that they say Democrats did not conduct. So I don't know that this is part of the deal-making that they made there. Part of the deal-making they made was uh, related to the debt ceiling, saying that Republicans promised not to raise the debt ceiling without at least bringing to a vote other massive spending cuts that would go along with it, that they would uh, try to pass uh, anti-abortion laws and things, many of which, by the way, don't have a chance of getting past the Senate. Uh, even though the Republicans have a slim majority and could possibly pass them in the House. So what could this oversight committee actually do, since it's only in the House of Representatives? As you say, Democrats control the Senate. So really no legislation is going to get passed, but what could come out of it? Well, they could issue subpoenas. They could uh, try to embarrass the president, embarrass people surrounding him. Uh, But as uh, the Democrats found, uh, it uh, It appears that you can ignore subpoenas from a congressional committee, especially if you're a member of Congress or in government, and not have any consequences. That was the case in many of the instances when the January 6th committee issued subpoenas uh, and orders for uh, documents from former Trump officials. I think only one person was uh, actually indicted and convicted for, for doing that. The rest of them seem to have gotten away without any consequence whatsoever. So, uh, you know, I don't know that that's what Joe Biden and his team are going to do, but they've seen a blueprint for what Republicans did in the past. Uh, That's number one. And number two, you can tie these things up in the courts for a long time, as we've seen with the January 6th committee. And that's a possibility, too, with, with some of the people being investigated. But again, We don't know what the strategy is here on who they're going to uh, subpoena and and where this is going to go. But all we do know is they're promising lots of investigations. So who's heading this committee? Representative James Comer of Kentucky. Uh, He's head of the Oversight Committee. He's the one who is sending all these letters and uh, promises to have public hearings to make sure that the administrative branch, the uh, the executive branch, is held accountable. So get ready for more partisan fireworks. ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, more on President Biden's classified documents scandal when the Northwest Politicast continues after this.
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. President Biden has his own docudrama after documents marked classified were found in his private office after he ended his term as vice president. Additional documents were also found in his garage, and now an investigation is underway. We get more from Northwest News Radio's Manda Factor and Greg Herschel. Attorney General Merrick Garland has named Trump appointee and former U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland Robert Hur as a special counsel in the Biden classified documents matter. This comes after a second batch of documents was found at President Biden's Wilmington home. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was pressed about the new discovery by ABC News. He was surprised that the records were found. Uh, he does not know what's in them. That has not changed. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers is with us right now, and it sounded like it might have been a little tense in that room. It was, uh, and it certainly kind of got to a point where there were many more questions that were being not answered uh, than answered. Karine Jean-Pierre was really punting back to the statement, the brief statement from the White House lawyer that was issued after the special counsel was announced, and the statement from President Biden, but that came hours before the special counsel had been announced. The White House lawyer, Richard Sauber said uh, in a statement, we are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced and the president and his lawyers acted promptly upon discovery of this mistake. And that is the point that uh, Corrine and, and White House officials want to emphasize, inadvertently misplaced and mistake, that this was not nefarious, that this was not intentional, and that once they knew they were there, they did all of the right things by turning them over immediately. The president said yesterday uh, again that he takes classified material very seriously and that he and his team are fully cooperating with these reviews. Uh, but, you know, there's still a lot of questions about what is in this material, uh, why the administration wasn't fully transparent about the second batch, which they, which they were aware of because they were discovered in December when they were talking publicly about uh, the first batch earlier this week. So, you know, questions about transparency and the White House says, well, they're being transparent with the Justice Department in the review and essentially equating that to being transparent with the American public, too. Do we have any indication of how long it's going to take to sort all of this out? No. We don't. I mean, the White House would like this to be done as quickly as possible, of course, uh, just to be able to put this uh, political headache behind them. The one thing uh, that was notable yesterday is that they say from their side, their review, their search of places where documents could be is completed. They've looked at the president's homes and his offices and gone through every place where records could be kept. I asked Kareen if the president is confident that there are no other locations where classified materials could be found. She again reiterated the search is complete and referred me to the statement from the lawyer. Karen, thanks very much. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers. Meanwhile, Republicans who now control the House are salivating, but Democrats who control the Senate have a very different view. That part of the story from Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler. The Senate Majority Leader says lawmakers should let the special counsel investigation into President Biden's handling of classified materials from his time as vice president play out. In an interview with CNN, New York Democrat Chuck Schumer says he's in favor of the investigation. Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday naming a special counsel to review that matter. With more on that story, ABC's Ike Ajachi is with me on our Northwest Newsline. Ike, uh, what's the latest here? Anything developing overnight? Well, we know so far is that indeed that special counsel, Robert Hur, who oversaw one of the largest U.S. attorney's offices in the nation as a chief federal law enforcement officer, uh, he's going to be the one overseeing this case with Biden's documents. Now, uh, on Wednesday, the White House uh, reporters, they sparred over questions surrounding these classified documents with White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. And 
Oh, she just kept deflecting. Oh, we saw her say time and time again that it's under review, that she's going to let the DOJ do their process, and she's not going to get ahead of it. Now, she went on to say that she's limited in what she can say at the podium, declining to answer on whether Biden was briefed on the discovery. Now, several reporters were pressing Jean-Pierre about the lack of transparency in this situation, in which she just repeated the usual line that the entire situation is under a review. We saw President Biden speak about this on Tuesday, uh, where he said he was unaware of what the documents were found and that his lawyers advised him not to seek such information. Uh, He also said that he was surprised such records were kept there. But we now know that, indeed, on November 2nd, his aides found those first around 10 documents at his office in a think tank in Washington, D.C. A month later, we saw another uh, set of documents found. And recently, just alerted, as in the public was just alerted, about those documents that were kept in the garage inside his Wilmington home. I imagine uh, most of the GOP that you have heard reaction from are wanting to hold his feet to the fire, the president's feet to the fire on this. Yeah, I mean, we've heard uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said that the DOJ is getting is treating Biden differently than we saw uh, them treat former President Donald Trump. That is before he said that, before a special counsel was uh, assigned to the case. Uh, And we finally heard from former President Trump, who is also under federal investigation for the hundreds of documents that were seized from his Florida home by FBI agents. Now, in a radio radio interview last night, Trump responded for the first time to the appointment of a special counsel in the Biden document case, saying it's incredible, actually, with all the talking they did. It's a disgraceful situation. Nevertheless, uh, there are stark differences in the way President Biden handled the discovery of the documents and the way President, former President Trump handled uh, the documents that were found at his house. We know that it took just hours before the discovery of the documents for President Biden's team to hand them over to the National Archives and alert the DOJ, where former President Trump was engaged in an eight-month-long back-and-forth with federal agents, even at one point defying a subpoena and falsely having his lawyers sign a letter saying that there are no more documents in his possession. Obviously, we know that was not true based on the court-appointed search that was war- uh, that was levied on his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. All right, Ike, thanks for your reporting. We'll let you go. That's ABC's Ike Ajachi in Washington. And that's Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, the truth is out there. But does the Pentagon know about it? When the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, is there something out there? Well, according to a Pentagon report on UFOs, probably not. Shane Harris is covering it for the Washington Post, and he spoke with Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler. How extensive was this Pentagon report? Pretty extensive. They analyzed 366 different sightings of uh, UFOs, which they refer to as unidentified aerial phenomena, and found that uh, nearly 200 of them could be uh, attributed to pretty routine objects, including drones, balloons, and even clutter, in one case, a plastic bag. Uh, So no evidence of alien life uh, in these reports so far. Okay, so what kind of conclusions did this 
all domain anomaly resolution office come to? What was left undecided? Anything? Yeah, there are about 170 reports that they call uncharacterized. And they do acknowledge that some of these, in their words, appeared to have what they called unusual flight characteristics or performance capabilities. And that's kind of government jargon for some of these really dramatic maneuvers we've seen in footage that people may be familiar with that was taken from the cockpit of fighter jets some years ago of what appear to be objects darting around the sky, moving up and down at great speeds. And there's been a lot of research by the government into this, like what are these craft, in fact, if they are physical objects. So even though they've ruled out in this most recent report about 200 of these sightings as being something unusual, there still is a good chunk, about 170 reports that are not characterized, and they have to dig further into those and determine whether they are drone aircraft, adversary aircraft, or something else. Is this the end of the search, or will they continue to expand on that search? No, I think it's the beginning of, of more expansiveness. I mean, the, the, the Pentagon even said recently that while they had not uh, determined that there was any evidence of extraterrestrial life in any of these sightings, that their search will continue and expand. NASA is now looking into this question of UAPs, the sightings of which are being are increasing in part because the military has told its personnel, look, if you see something, say something, essentially. And a lot of these sightings are near military installations or around ships or aircraft. So I think it's fair to say that as people keep reporting these sightings, the government is going to keep digging into them. And what officials have said is that they hope that as they have more experience with these kinds of sightings and trying to determine what they are, they'll get better over time at making those characterizations. And hopefully some of these uh, uh, sightings that fall into the question mark category, they'll be able to put some answers to them. Well, there are true UFO believers out there. They must be disappointed in this report. Is there anything for them to to get a little latch onto? I'm afraid not. (laughs) Unless you want to take the evidence of uh, the absence of evidence, I guess, as a conclusion that there might still be something out there. Um, you know, we should say there are still some pretty unusual and dramatic sightings and footage uh, that have not been attributed positively. Uh, so I think for those who want to believe that maybe we're being uh, visited from beyond, you know, there's still a little bit of hope in so far that some things haven't been firmly characterized yet. All right, Shane. Thanks. It's an interesting article, and I urge our listeners to read it. Shane Harris on the Pentagon analysis of UFOs at WashingtonPost.com. That's Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler. Now, I hope you're enjoying your three-day weekend, and of course, Monday is a holiday to honor the life and legacy of civil rights champion Martin Luther King Jr. Bill Swartz takes a look back at Dr. King's only visit to Seattle and his lasting impact. Reverend Samuel B. McKinney was pastor of Seattle's Mount Zion Baptist Church in 1961, a time when the city was struggling with racial divide. Mount Baker, Mont Lake, some parts of Madrona. Then this in 1958, did not want uh, black people. I don't get caught up in people of color. Reverend McKinney was a roommate and Morehouse College fraternity brother of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. In a 2005 interview with University of Washington students, Reverend McKinney says he invited Dr. King to speak at First Presbyterian Church, but was met with resistance. There was a lot of unhappiness and unrest within the church and in sections of the white community about him coming here because he was considered the most radical Negro at that time. So on November 9th, 1961, King wound up speaking about segregation and civil liberties on the University of Washington campus, the next day delivering a similar message at the downtown Eagles Auditorium and finally Garfield High School. First time that he spoke here and only time that he spoke here and ever since then on that day and on that occasion essentially we hold this celebration 
uh, in remembrance of his trip to Seattle and his legacy and his work in this country. Robert Alexander is vice chair of Seattle MLK Coalition, an all-volunteer group dedicated to Dr. King's work for racial equality, economic justice, peace through nonviolent means. This Monday's program is the 40th for the grassroots organization, and everyone is welcome. You know, we live in a world where the news every day is telling us something negative. But you can at least go out and experience something positive, and that's the one thing that I'm always proud of about our event is that we do generate positive energy and love, a, a feeling like a sense of community at this event and people who are going to bring their families and, and march together in the spirit of Dr. King, and I think that's beautiful. I'll have much more on Dr. Martin Luther King's impact on Seattle and King County in Northwest News Radio's Puget Sound Now, 7 o'clock Sunday morning. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. Finally this week, let's call it a point of personal privilege. We're wishing a member of our family a happy retirement after he's signed off one last time. Under 17, not allowed to listen to this newscast. From his career start in the early 70s in Spokane to major market presence each morning for decades here in Seattle, we're all very used to waking up with Greg Herschel. Welcome to Friday morning. He has meant so much to so many. Greg, thanks for your work. Good luck. Governor Jay Inslee sending his congratulations as Greg hangs up his headphones after five decades in the business. Morning co-anchor Manda Factor. I know I am one of many people who have taught uh, life lessons, radio lessons. I just really appreciate our time together. I've been so lucky. Greg plans a lot of travel and time with the grandkids, but we're sending him off in style. Now, therefore, I, Bruce Harrell, mayor of Seattle, do hereby proclaim January 13th, 2023, to be Greg Herschelt Day. Brian Calvert. Wait a minute. You should do it one more time, buddy. Greg Herschelt, Northwest News Radio. Happy retirement, Greg. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcast. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.